if I were a ghost, you would have a really tough go of it. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a threat. That's it just is. true. That's a threat. <laughs> How is that not... Rowan, walk me through how that is not a threat. Well, because I need love and affection, even though I'm undead. I need you to be there for me. And I I think it would be really exciting for me to be able to whisper things in your ear that, like, maybe you shouldn't have known. We can, like, make you the new version of the Fox Sisters. Okay. Honestly... I'm going to be very judgmental of any human that comes and, like, tries to woo you. I'm going to do full (laughs) recon, make sure that they're good. No, I'm going to be, like, a, I don't know, any YA ghost that is just, like, such a lurker. Like, pay Mm -hmm. attention to me. I love you. Don't fall down those stairs. That person's bad. Ooh, let's play a prank on the person that's trying to mug you. Like, all of it. (laughs) (laughs) So just you. You just continue to be yourself. Yes, but I don't have to exist. Yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right. You can go through walls. That's the big difference. Wow, that's so funny. I never thought of ghosts as being that go through walls. That's canon in ghost lore. Yes, Rowan. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> hey, Rowan. Yeah. How are you doing? <laughs> I've officially hit that point in quarantine. I'm losing it. Oh, I basic thought evades me. I have been saying more and more lately just that my brain is jello. And truly, I mean it. It's just mush. What flavor? Not a good one. That's the thing. Is it, If it was, well, I don't know. Maybe it's a good one. What flavor of jello would my brain be? Hmm. This is interesting. I w- okay, I want to say apple because then you get that nice, rich green color that you like so much, but truly... Mm, no, but that's like a gross green. Right, right, right. Truly, it's not a good green and it doesn't taste good. No, no. So maybe that is maybe that is what my brain is. Maybe that's what I deserve. How about that watermelon bullshit? <laughs> Sorry, I just came in real hot on watermelon jello. Here's my quick. Here's another... I don't know, hot take, brave yet controversial statement. I don't like Jello. <laughs> no, Jello's awful. It is truly inferior to pudding in every way. Yes. This is why we are um, forever best friends. <laughs> <laughs> although, although, if I mm-hmm. were your ghost and you had Jello and some, I don't know, you were laid up and someone's like, you have to eat this Jello to get well, I would definitely get rid of the Jello for you as a ghost so you didn't have to eat it. Thank you. That is weird. This is my solemn vow. <laughs> Hi, I'm Rowan Hall. <laughs> and I'm Tracy Harrison. And this is Willing and Fable, the podcast that brings you original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> and if you would like to support this podcast, you can do so in a multitude of ways. Rowan, what's one way they can support us? Ooh, my favorite way is a review. Leave us a review. Say nice things about us on the internet. Mm -hmm. Yes, we love that. The funnier, the better. We might even read it on the show. You can also check out our merch at willingandfable.com. And what's one more? You can also join our Patreon at patreon.com slash willingandfable. We'd love to hang out with you in Discord, send you bloopers of us just being absolute goofs. You know if we talk about Jell-O on the podcast, the bloopers have got to be real good. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Or you can just keep listening. We are so 
happy to have you with us, ghosts and non-ghosts alike. Humans, mortals, immortals, ghosts. We're just happy that you clicked on this episode. Yes, cryptids also, you are welcome here. We feel so lucky that Willing and Fable gets to partner with Greenleaf Geek this spring. We've talked about it before, but then I keep <laughs> talking about it. You know that Rowan and I are longtime tabletop gamers, and it is so nice to have an excuse to go back to one of my favorite parts of playing TTRPGs, which is the dice, and physically rolling the dice. There's something that feels lost when you click a button on a computer. I was thinking about how cool it is actually to, as a woman-owned podcast, partner with a woman-owned dice company. Because mm -hmm. as members of the D&D &D community, we're kind of watching the girls, the gays, and the theys become louder and louder voices yes. in the TTRPG world. And it just makes me so happy. I feel like Leah is such a shining example. Like, I learn from her every time I interact with her how to be, like, the best possible human. Yes. I... Oh, my God. We had a phone call where we met her for the first time, and we ended that call so giddy because it was like our dice soulmate partner. Like, we just – I'm pretty sure within the first five minutes we're talking about the McElroy brothers and my brother, my brother, and me and all the different shows we like. And anyway, she is all the best parts of the gaming community, and she makes the best dice ever. The pre-meeting part that we probably shouldn't talk about on podcast, but whatever, was you and I on a call going, okay, we want her to like us. So yes. we have to we have to be enthusiastic, but we don't want her to think that we're just blindly simping and like we don't want to come off as like standoffish, but we do want her to think that we're like a little bit cool. It was <laughs> – we were just trying so hard to be – likable people <laughs> and then it ended up being so easy and natural and the call lasted uh, three times as long as oh, yeah. we all planned <laughs> we are not cool no i've never been to, ever been described cool in my life not once not never so if you want to check out Greenleaf Geek's handmade and curated dice head to twitter and instagram at greenleafgeek or to greenleafgeek.com Willing and Fable listeners can use our special code, FABLE, that's F-A-B-L-E, for 10% off your order. Some restrictions apply. <laughs> Tracy, <laughs> where did you mm -hmm. pull those out of? Is that a jar? <laughs> it sure is. <laughs> Stop it. Okay, uh, describe what they look like. <laughs> okay, so these are... Um... The Violet Galaxy dice, they are so pretty. They are so pretty. They shift from purple to red, and they have this sort of semi-translucent quality to them with flecks of glitter that genuinely distract me when, <laughs> they, when, I, when they glitter catches the light. They're very similar to Rowan's Galactic Disaster Buy dice, and they have this space feeling to them but they're also colorful and so satisfying to roll i love them we should have a battle royale that's just the two of us and it's glitter <laughs> dice only 
Oh, I love it. These are just so satisfying and they're so pretty. And they just, every angle you look at them, they look different. Mm. And they're in your jam jar, which I just think is the cutest little <laughs> cottage witch thing. <laughs> <laughs> they um, also have a purple wax seal on top of them to go with the purple shade in the dice. You're not extra at all. Because I know what I'm about. <laughs> so when you inevitably go and check out Greenleaf Geek to get your dice, don't forget to use our code FABLE. That's F-A-B-L-E for 10% off your order. Some restrictions apply. All right. It's, it's the time. No more simping. No more positivity. We're getting into the topic that I am covering by myself today. Mm -hmm. So it would be for the best that my brain is not all jello. <laughs> Today's episode, if you didn't already know by clicking, is the Hatfields and the McCoys. Which is a topic that I came in so hot and heavy on at the top of this season. Mm-hmm. When we realized we were going to do some heavy hitters from history that required entire episodes, I dibsed on the Hatfields and the McCoys right away. Which is good because as we mentioned in the Rasputin episode, I quietly whimpered until Rowan let me have that one. So, <laughs> so I'm excited for you to cover this one because you, you really have wanted to do it for a while. Everything that brought me to this story ended up becoming unimportant when I finally researched it. And I have so many new thoughts and feelings. The thing that struck me actually is, so the last two weeks we explored Jack the Ripper's reign of terror in London. And that's happening in 1888. Mm -hmm. Well, at the same time, America was going nuts for the violent, murderous feud of two Appalachian families. The meat of our tale will occur between the 1830s and the 1890s. It never, my brain just did not smash together yeah. those two worlds. It, I will forever, forever be baffled at... The events that take place simultaneously in history. Yeah, because things that are landmark moments in different countries could never feasibly be at the same time. My brain just compartmentalizes <laughs> yeah. them. They are on their own plane. But before we get into it, um, Tracy, what do you know about the Hatfields and the McCoys? Yeah, this is not going to take very long. I have not thought about the Hatfields and the McCoys since my freshman year English class in high school. My memory is it's two feuding families in Appalachia, something with pigs. I got nothing. Oh, truly, that's a, a great start, actually. You're, you're great. <laughs> Don't even worry about it. Okay. Because <laughs> that's where I started, only I added in Romeo and Juliet, that phrase. My brain right. went... Right. Pigs, Romeo and Juliet, Appalachia. And that's how we ended up here. <laughs> Before I dive into it, I just want to remind everyone that even though this is a historical event, like many of the world's great histories, 
Parts of it are hotly debated because no one has an exact handle on what is true and what is embellished, Mm. especially when there are two very distinctive sides of the story. So we're going to do our best. And I'm going to start out with a Time article by Kurt Anderson that was written 100 years after the fact about in 1981. And he wrote, The Tug Fork Valley, Booster's Chime, is the heart of the billion-dollar coal field. But hidden behind that bluff commercial slogan is a different kind of past, peculiar and unsavory and murderous. This valley is the home turf of the Hatfields and the McCoys, whose family war a century ago became freakish folk legend, even as it was being fought. All right, Wikipedia gives it to us plainly. We're in the Tug Fork, and they say the Tug Fork, sometimes called the Tug River, is a tributary of the Big Sandy River, 159 miles long, in southwestern West Virginia, southwestern Virginia, and eastern Kentucky in the United States. Via the Big Sandy and Ohio rivers, it is part of the watershed of the Mississippi River. So for anyone who's not particularly geographically inclined, which truly I am not, Oh, I am am certainly in that category. Imagine throughout this story the place where eastern Kentucky and western, southwestern, pardon me, West Virginia smash into each other. The Tug Fork River truly actually divides the states. And then just below all that, we're going to have Virginia. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> Tracy, I've given all these uh, portions of the story really ridiculous titles, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is for my brain, um, but I will announce the first one, and that's Who's Your Daddy? <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, let's find out. Who's your daddy? The families we're about to explore were legacy Appalachian families, but our war centers around the patriarchs of each family at this time. We're going to start with William Anderson Hatfield, or Devil Ants. He was the patriarch of the Hatfield family. He was born in 1839 in what is now Logan County, West Virginia. There are many stories that explain his nickname. One is that his mother Nancy said he was, quote, so mean the devil was scared of him, which carries extra weight because he was one of 18 or possibly 11 children But either way, that's entirely too many, so we can assume his mother was a tough broad. It's said that he killed a mountain lion as a young boy. I'm sorry, was that one poor, blessed woman, the mother of between 11 and 18 children? That number is kind of ballpark what it's going to be for the whole rest of the story. Can you imagine? I mean... 11, let's say if you had 11 children, that's like eight or nine years of your life just being pregnant and then having to, by the time you've given birth 11 times, you're probably just like over it. Like, you know, that process backwards and forwards, you could do it in your sleep. This is why birth control was the single biggest game changer in history for people with uteruses. Mm Mm-hmm. But I want to double back and talk about how punk rock the nickname Devil <laughs> Ants is. Yes. Very good. As far as nicknames go, I mean, Devil Ants. Like, I can just call this man Devil, and I'm going to. Good. Good. <laughs> oh, that is a good nickname. 
To shock you more with children, huh. he married the daughter of a local farmer, Levisy Chafin, in 1861, and over the course of their marriage, they had 13 children. It's too many. Trace, can you describe the picture of this man that I pulled up for you? Okay. It is a black and white photo from about the waist up of a man staring just past your shoulder. Like if you're the camera lens, he's looking just over the left past the lens. He has a, you can only see the brim of his hat, but he's got a circular brim hat and a very big beard. So he's wearing a nice 1800 suit he looks put together and then he has this huge mustache and beard that hangs down to his chest with he's a little bit older so he's got kind of some wrinkles and these slanted eyes he looks he looks like a whiskey grandpa in a suit is what he looks like yes and he has this button on his lapel or a pin i don't know that looks like it might be cute and charming but to me this man has he has murder energy like even Mm -hmm. if you're a child you know that this man is not someone to be trifled with he looks like the kind of man who would sit on his front porch with a rifle pretty much i mean Mm -hmm. so on the other side of this feud we have randolph randall mccoy Not as good a nickname. He was one of 13 children. He was more than a decade older than Devil Ants. PBS reports that he grew up on a farm neighboring the Hatfields in West Virginia, and it was later that he moved his family across the river to Kentucky, but Biography.com says he was born and raised in Kentucky. Either way, he grew up in poverty. His father, Daniel, was famous for, quote, having no interest in work. So Mm. his mother struggled to feed the 13 children. And there is no way that Randall was going to inherit land from his lazy father. In 1849, he married Sarah Sally McCoy, his first cousin. She inherited land from her father not long after they married, and that's what brought the pair to Pike County, Kentucky. And then they would go on to have 16 of their own children. It's just, it's so many. It's just a lot. I'm just getting used to the numbers, but okay. All right. So he married his first cousin, Sally, not uh, unusual for the time and place, so gonna breeze past that one right it stresses me out but you know it's not Mm -hmm. as noteworthy as we might think unfortunately by the time that we're entering history with this feud both families were intermarried they worked together they did business together the tug fork river divided west virginia and kentucky but people crossed back and forth all the time Mm. uh But, of course, we're not talking about cooperation. It's not called the Hatfields and the McCoys peacetime. Um, (laughs) So let's get into the reasons why these two rat bastards are fighting. And I want to be clear, there's no good guys going on. Um, Okay. All right. And the last detail I want us to remember is that the Hatfields are descended from the British Heathfields. And the McCoys are descended from one Scottish man named John McCoy, who came over to the United States. And they are part of that um, migration to Appalachia, heavily Scottish. We have Irish communities. We have some British communities. And people attribute that demographic to a lot of the clan warfare that goes on there. 
Mm, um, I okay. won't get into that too much in this story, but today, even now, you can, as my friend Kaylee Bray reminded me, you can go to parts and still hear dialects that are have basically been untouched for a hundred years, and you can hear the Scottish and Irish influences very clearly. Mm, that's interesting. It's really cool. It makes the music extra fun. It's it's a good time. So, Trace. Mm-hmm. Do you know anything about the stolen hog trial? <laughs> Rowan, I'm genuinely impressed with myself that the word pig that appeared suddenly in my mind 10 minutes ago uh, was even remotely accurate. So I'm going to go with absolutely not. I think <laughs> one of them said the other one stole a hog and it started a lot of death. Cool. Awesome. You're right on track. Um, All right. Great. Families in this area often had control, almost always actually, had control of huge areas of woods. And it was commonplace to own hogs, let them wander around and forage and get fat during the warm months, and then find them and slaughter them at the end of the season. So people would mark their hogs, not unlike you might have seen people marking their cows in Amish Mm -hmm. country where we grew up. Biography.com describes the fight over the faithful hog thusly. Quote, in 1878, Randall McCoy accused Floyd Hatfield, a cousin and close friend of Devil Ants, of stealing one of his hogs. He took Floyd to court in Kentucky, seeking to recover his lost animal. The McCoys and the Hatfields were both large families in the area, and the local attorney brought together a jury that equally represented both sides, made up of six Hatfields and six McCoys. Despite these good efforts, the trial ended up creating tensions between the two families. One of the McCoy cousins, Bill Staten, testified in support of Hatfield, a move that was seen as a betrayal. Another family member, Selkirk McCoy, who served as a juror in the case, also sided with the Hatfields. The jury ruled in Floyd Hatfield's favor. This verdict did not sit well with McCoy and other members of his family. End quote. And an important note that I love. The justice of the peace who organized the trial and made sure that there were equal numbers of both families, he was called Preacher Ants Hatfield, as opposed to his cousin Devil Ants, I guess. Oh, my God. I want a TV show, Preacher and Devil Ants. <laughs> it's so good. So after the results were delivered, one day, the main witness, Staten, went out hunting. He ran into a couple McCoys, Sam and Paris. Everyone pulled a gun, one McCoy was injured, and they shot Staten dead. When they faced judgment, the brothers McCoy were acquitted on the grounds of self-defense. Okay, so to make sure I'm caught up so far, so... A McCoy accused a Hatfield of stealing a pig. The jury mm-hmm. ruled in favor of, no, the Hatfield did not. The main witness, who was a Hatfield, later went out hunting and was killed by McCoys. The main witness, who was a cousin of a McCoy, went out hunting and was killed oh. by the McCoys. Okay. All right. There is no crossing of party lines between these two families. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. While this is a very cool origin story for what would go on to be a decades-long bloody war that resulted in the deaths of anywhere between 20 and 100 people, 
it might not be the first big moment of this fight. And, you know, we get to sit here like with granola bars and microwaves and Postmates and takeout and say, like, it was just a pig. But it wasn't. It was survival. At that time, those Mm -hmm. hogs could feed a family of four for 30 days. Mm. Yeah. And more than the pig, others point out that Floyd was Devil Ants' cousin. But he was related to both families, and Randall might have taken offense to Floyd working for his rival's successful timber business, while Randall himself was only a subsistence farmer and sometime ferryboat operator who couldn't bring as much economic or political success to his own clan. Okay, so there was potentially a little bit of jealousy there? Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm, okay. Presuming the hog wasn't the start, we're going to go back in history a little bit and get some background. This portion of American history is set in central Appalachia. Just a reminder, the Tug Fork River marks the exact border between Kentucky and West Virginia, but West Virginia only became its own state, with the express purpose of joining the Union, two years after the beginning of the Civil War on June 20th, 1863. Many of the adult men fighting this war, who now found themselves in Union West Virginia, didn't become Unionists simply because politicians drew new lines on the map. Mm. And because of the location, many sources will say that the Kentucky McCoys fought for the Union and the Hatfields fought for the Confederacy because they were really true Virginians at heart. That makes for a great story. And it puts them on opposite sides of a very important historical moment, but it's not true. (laughs) Mm, As with so many things in these history episodes, some of the coolest parts are inevitably tall tales. Yeah. Kentucky and West Virginia were part of the slaveholding Union states, and the state's decisions had very little to do with the loyalties of those who lived in that area. From one home to the next, you might have people fighting on different sides of the war, and the Tug Valley became this central location for guerrilla warfare. Oh, God. Labeled the confusing Confederate services of Randolph McCoy by Civil War profiles, it is difficult to track the elder man's exact journey through the war, uh, but he definitely was on the Confederate side. They go on to say, quote, Oral traditions hold that Randolph McCoy and Devil Ants Hatfield served in the same Confederate unit during the Civil War, but their names, as yet, have not been found together on any unit rosters. Again, I think that's another moment of like, wouldn't it be cool if they were once together Mm -hmm. and now they're fighting? Eh. Mm -hmm. Devil Ants Hatfield was a first lieutenant and later a captain in the Virginia State Line, a unit that promised its soldiers they would complete their military service near their undefended homes. Later, he deserted the Confederacy but continued defending it in a Tug Valley partisan unit says Jane Ann Phillips, writing for Laframs Quarterly. She's an English professor and director of the MFA program at Rutgers University, Newark, and I will be referencing her work a fair bit. Ooh, I look forward to it. She's awesome. So this unit of devil ants 
and especially he himself, were known for their incredibly brutal guerrilla-style tactics in the Appalachian wilderness. Enter Randall's brother, Asa Harmon McCoy. There are some names in this episode that I've truly never heard in my life before. I like Asa. No, it's not. Uh, no judgment on the names. Asa. There was one earlier, Levisy. Never heard that name before. I weirdly kind of like that name, but you can't just go naming children after a McCoy. I mean, can you not? Or a Hatfield? She is a Hatfield because yeah, she well, was okay. Levisy Chafin, but then she married Devil, Devil Lance. Right. There are some cool old-timey names. I'm very partial to the name Verity. I think that's a really cool old-timey name. You're going to like some of these. So Asa Harmon McCoy. When he returned home, he hid out in a cave to avoid the Confederate soldiers in the area because he was one of very few Union loyalists. Ooh, okay. In 1865, he was shot and killed by Anderson Hatfield's militia, some say by Devil Ants himself. As the particularly wonderful PBS documentary The Feud points out, sometimes these guerrilla acts were based on prior animosity and sometimes they created it. Mm. By the way, go rent that documentary on Amazon. It's amazing. Though Asa's political views were unpopular with the Confederate McCoy family, he was still their family. And mm-hmm. though they didn't immediately seek retribution after his murder, it did not go unnoticed. So people can argue about the hog or the Civil War killing being the start of it. But because the Civil War killing came first and then we have the hog, I think this is just a constant ratcheting up of okay. mm-hmm. conflict. Your expression, death by a thousand cuts is so applicable here. (laughs) Truly an expression I didn't mean to become associated with, but more than one person in my life has now said they associate that expression with me. Oh, yeah. It's it's a Tracyism for sure in my head. (laughs) Now let's talk about Anderson Hatfield's business and the socioeconomic world these two families occupied because it's absolutely critical to understanding why everyone was constantly killing each other. Okay. Anderson Hatfield's father left land to every single one of his many sons except Devil Ants. (gasps) Why? I don't know. (laughs) It's so aggressive. That's so aggressive. It's very specific. It does make me think that maybe he was just an absolute rat bastard who got the name Devil Ants because he genuinely sucked. We're talking about... Thousands and thousands of acres that this family owned. So to specifically not give it to one of, I don't know, 11 to 18 boys, somewhere in that number, (laughs) is so aggressive. It's so, it's such an F you. It's such a clear, I don't like my son. Ooh, ooh, that that paints a picture of ants. Ooh. So when ants came home from the war, He knew he had to make it on his own, and he created a timber business like many locals at the time were wont to do. Only this sly devil did it better than most. (laughs) Sly devil. (laughs) How can I not? No, it was good. I, I respect it. 
This was the beginning of a new way of life in the region. The forest no longer meant sustenance as much as wood for cash. One report from the Times said, quote, The hills and valleys of West Virginia are full of wealth, and all anyone had to do was find a way to sell it. Ooh. Enter Perry Klein. Tracy, what does this guy look like? Okay, so we're looking at a black and white photo of a man from collarbone up. He's got short cropped hair, big eyes that are kind of upsetting. The biggest feature you'll notice with this photograph is the between the way that his facial hair is and the shadows of the photograph from under his nose to his chin is just a diamond of mustache and beard. Like he's got a thin mustache that shapes outwards to become a wide goatee-like beard that then curves back down to a point. It is extremely odd. I wish that I could have found a version of this picture that was crisper because I've seen versions I throughout my research that are sharpened. Um, mm-hmm. His eyes are haunting. They, I find him very unsettling to look at. He, he, he looks like the same energy of someone who would come at you with a rifle that – I mentioned earlier, except that one was Whiskey Grandpa, and this is like – he just has the, he has the look of someone from the South in that time period, I think is what's really sticking out to me. Like the facial hair, the sport coat-like jacket, and and then all of that on its own would be fine. Those eyes are just – they're a little – there's a little too much white showing for it to be a, a calm face, I think is what's upsetting. I so badly just want to be like, yeah, he was the best guy in the story. He saved everyone's lives, but I can't do that, so. (laughs) You told me in the beginning there are no heroes, so. I will let you know if we encounter any heroes. Okay. Perry Klein, the man we just described, and his brother were relatives of Randall McCoy. And they believed that Devil Ants Hatfield was trespassing on their land and logging it. This was a five thousand acre tract that they had inherited from their own father. Hatfield, on the other hand, asserted that it belonged to his father. Okay. The Klein brothers accused Hatfield of taking their inheritance, quote, at the muzzle of a gun, and they eventually signed over a portion of it to Anderson. I have no idea what caused them to do this, but Devil Ants was both respected and feared and notably violent. Klein eventually left the valley. So exit Perry Klein for now. Okay, okay. Anderson Hatfield, who was illiterate, was one of the largest landowners in the area. He was a great businessman and cleverly used his land as a guarantee to buy the tools he needed to expand his logging business. He hired family members, but he also welcomed men whose farms were, quote, busted during or post-Civil War. Mm -hmm. This created a massive familial network that was based on both blood ties and money. McCoy never had Hatfield's success, and no doubt it stung. He partnered with his father, that famously lazy man Daniel, 
mm-hmm. in their own timbering business, but it fell apart after the elder McCoy was accused of logging on a neighbor's property, a move that Hatfield had just done successfully. Right. Ooh, that had to sting extra bad. Now, it's 1881. Enter Frederick Kimball a Philadelphia industrialist and the vice president of the newly created Norfolk and Western Railroad. He'd heard about a massive coal seam in the area, saw it, and then pictured his bright, shiny future ahead. The Norfolk and Western Railroad ran through Virginia, but Kimball convinced them to create a spur that led to the mineral deposits in West Virginia. This railroad would allow people to extract resources they previously had no way to move. The company laid down tracks by the end of 1881, and this was a game-changer for the Appalachian region and the Tug Valley in particular. Keep in mind, the first U.S. railroad opened in 1813 with 13 miles of track. Wow. In this story, we are watching the effect of industrialization literally spreading across the map. So now we're going to get to my Romeo and Juliet part. Okay, let's do it. I'm excited. Picture this. It's the summer of 1880. The light is golden. The grass is high. The hogs are fat and there's no smelly sweat whatsoever because it's your imagination. Thank you. (laughs) Families from both sides of the river came together for election day at a polling place in Pike County. It was a fun day that allowed people who were always working to celebrate with harmless competitions, dancing courting one another. The election day near Blackberry Creek in 1880 was the faithful beginning of the romance between Rosanna McCoy, Randall's daughter, and Devil Anse's eldest son, Johnce Hatfield. As the story goes, the pair drifted off, all shiny like new patties and looking into each other's eyes. They were having fun together. By themselves. Delivering soliloquies. I don't know. (laughs) Yep, definitely that. That, 100%. And they didn't come back until the polling places were closed, the party was over, and everyone had gone home. Johns Hatfield took Rosanna to West Virginia with him, where she slept upstairs with his sisters. All the while, her own brothers, who'd been charged with bringing her home from the party, were sent out into the dark to search for her. The next morning, the pair announced their intention to marry. (laughs) I want to be excited, but I'm so tense right now. Randall McCoy immediately disowned his daughter. And neither Hatfield parent would allow the marriage, though they wouldn't send the disowned Rosanna out out onto her own. They let her stay, weirdly, and the couple had a romantic few weeks together. But one day... Several McCoy brothers came upon the pair out walking, and they locked Johns in a Kentucky hunting cabin and had the young man arrested on an outstanding bootlegging warrant. Oof, that's harsh. You know everyone had an outstanding bootlegging warrant at that time. Oh, absolutely. There were warrants out for all of these people, and local law did not give a lick. Mm-hmm. This is a part you can get excited about, Tracy. Okay. Rosanna 
fully behaving like the main character of this story, went against her family again. She rode through the night across the river and warned devil ants. <gasps> she knew that if they didn't rescue him tonight, John's Hatfield would be taken to a prison in Pikeville, Kentucky, where people loyal to the McCoys would make sure he received the worst possible sentence. Well, the Hatfield posse surrounded the McCoy brothers, and they rescued their son. Rosanna continued to live with the Hatfields and eventually, predictably, announced a pregnancy. The Hatfields still would not allow the marriage, perhaps for fear of provoking the McCoys' violence. Rosanna did what countless women throughout all of time have done and went to live with a distant aunt. Mm. Her child did not survive for more than a year. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's... that one's sad. Johns tried to send messages to Rosanna via her cousin, Nancy McCoy. Well, okay. Nancy must have done a particularly good job of consoling him for his loss of his lover because Nancy and Johns married without asking their families for permission sometime the same year. Are you... So he, oh. The marriage was brief, so I don't care feel that good it was about brief. that. I don't care that it was brief. No, I don't, I don't care. I don't care if it lasted the rest of their lives or if it was brief. He was like, I need to marry Roseanne. I need to marry her. I need to marry her. I need to marry her. She gets disowned. He's fine. She saves his life. He's fine. She gets pregnant. He's fine. She has to go away. He's like, oh, my sweet baby. Let me just, I need to, hello, are you okay? And then her cousin's like, yeah, I'll. I can I can tell her that for you. And then he's just like, no, I'm into you now? Are you kidding me? The women in this story really get the short end of the stick a lot. Except Nancy. Nancy, I don't have any compassion for right now. I mean, I'm not even really blaming Nancy so much. I mean, like, Nancy, you're not looking great right now. Right. You but... don't look great. <laughs> but it's really jaunts that I was like, ooh, buddy, I was on your side. You were going to be like the Romeo, like the little – hero love interest protagonist and you're just a slimy little boy yeah i mean john hatfield didn't care about the women he just wanted to be a rebel and marry a mccoy right any mccoy will do clearly and you know women always get get the raw deal are we surprised no no, but I'm still mad. I'm 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 approaching the the witches episode level of angry, and we're like halfway through. So this will be all good. right. Buckle up, Buttercup. So we're back at another election day celebration. Only this time it's 1882. Remember, it's the big deal day where everyone gets to get together and talk apple pie and generational blood feuds. That day, Randolph McCoy's son Tolbert and a distant Hatfield relation began fighting over a minor debt. I'd say Tolbert, not high on the cool name scale. No, but it is a unique one. But True. It, it sounds like the name for a kid's train. Yes. Yes, it yeah. does. Of course, a crowd gathered as Tolbert McCoy and the Hatfield argued. Then Ellison Hatfield joined in. He's bigger. He's stronger, and he's Devil Ants' brother. And he's got a cooler name. Come on, Ellison versus Tolbert. Ellison's winning. 
Oh, absolutely. The entire community was watching. Ellison came from a family with land and respect. Tolbert only had previous humiliations at the hand of Anse's family during that rescue I talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. And he had the meager earnings of a subsistence farmer. So filled with envy and rage, he did not back down. Tolbert attacked Ellison with a knife. Ellison fought back. Two McCoy brothers joined in, and they stabbed Ellison 27 times. <gasps> then Ellison picked up a- seven times? Wait, and then did you just go on to say that Ellison did something? And then Ellison picked up a rock and tried to hit Tolbert over the head, but before he could, one of the McCoy brothers shot Ellison Hatfield in the back, and he fell to the ground severely wounded. Forget Rasputin. This is the man that wouldn't die. Yeah. I, I don't even... I was going to make a joke like, oh, they stab him 27 times in like the foot or something? Like what? Like a non-vital area? I think if I was stabbed 27 times in my legs, I'd still just die. I would just die. Honestly, you can stab me 27 times in like my psyche and I'm out. You can I'm say out. 27 gone. mean things about me and I'm gone. <laughs> I would not survive in this time period. No, no, honey, no. (laughs) No, no. (laughs) I think about that a lot, actually. Every time they dropped the numbers of children that these women had to pop out, I would have to defensively be one of the, like, old aunts who live together, like the lesbian who lives with another woman, just so I don't have to do the babies thing. Like, even if there was a John's Hatfield or whomever that I loved, I'd be like, nope, nope, nope. Sorry, not. I don't love you that much. I don't love you that much. I can't. I can't. No. I cannot. I agree. 100%. The McCoy brothers, Tolbert and the two who joined in, were apprehended by two Kentucky constables, and they were taken to a jail in Pikeville the next day. So they're all on the Kentucky side of the river. That's McCoy territory. Right, right, right. And the McCoy brothers are apprehended in McCoy territory. Yes. Okay, all right. I don't mean to repeat myself so much. I just know- Please do. I process about (laughs) 5% of whatever whatever anyone says to me at any given moment, so- Once names come into play, I am out. So Devil Ants wasn't there that election day, but he was informed of his brother's grave injury- This had all happened on the Kentucky side of the river, and he knew that if those three McCoy boys were taken to trial in Pikeville, that no one would ever find them guilty. So Anderson Hatfield formed an armed posse of over 20 men and went after the McCoys. People in the valley prided themselves on loyalty, and Hatfield's timber crew was viewed as part of the Hatfield family. Right, And they came to Devil's support quickly and without question, which shows how much power and respect he commanded. Mm -hmm. They seized all three McCoy boys, brought them back to West Virginia, and locked them up in an abandoned schoolhouse. Devil Ants laid down the powerful edict, if Ellison dies, so do you. How is Ellison still alive? Yeah, I don't know. Ellison was stabbed 27 times. And shot in the back. Literally, I feel sick at the thought of that. Like, I can't understand how tough... This man must have been a bear made human. I do imagine him that way. Mm Mm-hmm. 
big and buff. I imagine him bald, but with a beard. Sure, I can, I can I feel that. Why. I just get that energy from him. Hair everywhere except on top of the head. Absolutely. Here's another moment, Tracy, you can legitimately root for someone. That night, it poured down rain. And in another Shakespeare moment, Tolbert's mother, Randall McCoy's wife, Sally, crossed the flooding Tug Fork River to plead for her three sons' lives. She wasn't able to secure their release, and Ellison died of his wounds two days later. I'm impressed you hung on that long, but also good for Sally. The women are truly the main characters of this story. It was a ballsy, ballsy move. I mean, just just crossing the flooding Tug Fork River alone, but to do so to go into enemy territory to beg for your three sons' lives, something only a mother would do. That is a strong mother move. As much as I balk at the idea of having that many children, I do love, in all stories, I always love a strong mother figure who'll do anything for her children. I think one of the biggest elements of this story is masculinity, the definition of masculinity and how that affects these men. Mm -hmm. I don't know if there's anything more toxic (laughs) than constantly murdering each other's children. I don't know. Uh, But every time the women appear, it story-wise feels like this breath of fresh air. It's like, oh, right. This is the standard of logic. This is compassion. And now we're going back into this war. And it's easier to see that because this is set so far back in history. It's not happening right now. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. But it does drive me nuts when people are like, oh, women can't be in power. They're too emotional. They'll just start wars over nothing. It's like men literally do that already. And well, yeah. constantly in history, you'll see women are the ones often bringing the logic back into it. My favorite is when people say, you know, women menstruate. They can't be in power. They'll go crazy one week a month. And I always sit there going, you do know the hormone that increases during menstruation is testosterone, right? And you do know what men are made of, right? And you do know what the testosterone cycle is, right? It's 24 hours. <laughs> we are once a month. What men are once every 24 hours. I solemnly promise you here and now, Tracy, that I'm going to give you some real good science at the end of this. Oh, I'm so excited. Okay. All right. So we are at that Ellison just passed away from his wounds. Now what happens? After his death under the cover of darkness, the Hatfields marched the three boys back to the Kentucky side of the river. They blindfolded each, tied them to three trees and opened fire. So the shots rang out through the valley. Oh, my God. So he, I'm not, why am I surprised that ants, devil ants, held true to his word? There is something so cocky about taking the boys to the enemy side. Like, here you go. This will be easier for you. I don't want this on my side of the river, but I do have the audacity to commit this crime. I think if ants has nothing in this world, he has the audacity. Randall McCoy's eldest son said, We found my three brothers tied together. My little brother was on his knees, the top of his head shot off. I don't like that. I don't like that. 
The McCoys tried to raise a posse of their own to get revenge, but heroically, Sally McCoy told them no. It would only make things worse. I mean, Sally's the real hero of the story. There was generally the eye-for-an-eye law in Appalachia at this time, and very few people came to the McCoy boys' defense at all, which meant that they were either afraid or they didn't think Hatfield had done anything wrong. Jane Ann Phillips wrote, Though Kentucky indicted up to 20 Hatfields, including Devil Ants, at Randall McCoy's insistence, law enforcement made no attempt at extradition, which would have required deputizing an army and invading a sovereign state. Wow. News of the battle spread quickly. This is one of the first news reports for the time. It's from the New York Times, and it was included in a collection of other similar conflicts that occurred around the United States at the same moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Quote, Cattlesburg, Kentucky, August 12th. On election day in Pike County, a bloody affray occurred between the McCoy and Hatfield families, in which one of the Hatfields was shot and out so badly that he died. His friends banded together, caught three of the McCoys, and tied them to trees and shot them dead. More bloodshed is expected, as the members of the families are numerous and vindictive. That last sentence sounds like a weather report. (laughs) More bloodshed is expected, as they are numerous. As members of the family are numerous and vindictive. Back to you, Paul. (laughs) I want to be someone who will read a news report not in that stupid voice, but I'm not. No, I never want you to be that person. In 1884, two years later, the Norfolk and Western Railroad made its first faithful shipment of that valuable coal from its spur in southern West Virginia. Kimball, if you'll remember our entrepreneur from Philly, was now the president of the railroad. And next, he wanted to build a route to the Ohio River that may pass through the Tug Valley. But no one knew yet. Mm. And then this meant that outsiders desperately wanted titles to land in the area, hoping that the railroad would have to buy it up at a premium. The property cost as little as $1 an acre at the time, and the return would be exceptional. This was on top of the already valuable timbering and coal mining industries that flourished with the railroad's existing spur. Enter John Mayo, the real, true villain of this story. I hate this man. Oh my god. We haven't met the real villain yet? Oh, You guys cannot see how angry Rowan is right now, but she is genuinely fuming. I don't know if anyone's going to quite understand why I hate him, and I rarely will bestow hate upon people, but okay. He was a well-educated Pike County local Mm -hmm. born and raised in the area. He saw the value of the minerals in the land, coal being of particular import, and he traveled all around the Tug River Valley, convincing families to sell him, quote, mineral rights to their property. He used a broad-form deed. Quote, it granted rights to natural resources in, on, and under the land. Now, this seems simple and harmless. 
But that was in fine print that he made sure the locals did not read. Remember, Devil Ants himself, successful businessman, was illiterate. Right, right. And this fine print said that the coal companies had the power to extract their coal in any way they saw fit. This meant cutting down trees, building roads, and excavating the land right up to the doorstep of the small family homes. People who lived in the mountains believed that selling their land for mineral rights was a great boon to them because there was coal under their property and they would finally be paid for it even Mm -hmm. while they continued to live there going about their daily lives. As people who were accustomed to surviving off the land, this made complete sense. What John Mayo made sure of was their lack of understanding. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And these sales marked the beginning of the push to use Appalachia as a mine for a variety of resources that benefited the Industrial Revolution capitalists, not the families themselves. Exit John Mayo, who I would not be upset if he suffered for all of eternity in whatever bad place he believed in, like trying to always and forever read fine print with the wrong prescription of glasses. I hate this man. Yeah, that'd be a very fitting punishment. He is ex- Ooh, I just... And I just want to be clear. I don't hate this man because he was a capitalist. I hate this man because he took advantage of his own home town and the surrounding areas. He specifically made sure that people did not understand what they were signing up for, knowing that it would destroy their lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but especially in an area where loyalty is everything, and you know he was raised believing in loyalty, believing in supporting the people around you, for him to turn around and knowingly do that to anyone, but let alone the people he was raised around, is particularly villainous, and it is so frustrating and rage-inducing to hear terrible people do terrible things in history and get rewarded for it. He is out of the rest of this story. We're not going to get any, like, fictional story-level comeuppance or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But but he is a very important figure. What he did influenced the rest of what is about to occur. Without him, things would have looked different and someone else might have come along and done it but he did so screw that guy okay back to business corporations began buying the land in the tug valley which seemed to be rising in value overnight due to the railroad's planned continuation through the area and this was bad news for anderson hatfield who suddenly had increased competition for his logging business the merchants of logan county who had once funded his timber operations, now saw him as a problem. And they wanted to attract outside business. So they took Hatfield to court to collect what the devil owed them. Don't look at me like that. <laughs> I'm, not, what am, I'm not looking at you like anything. Having to pay all of those debts, debts which businesses reasonably carry, mm-hmm. all at once was very difficult for the Hatfield company to survive. Now let's welcome back to the scene, Perry Klein. Perry Klein, the man with the diamond mustache and goatee, correct? 
Yes, Perry Klein, the man who Hatfield once cheated out of his land 15 years ago. He now lived in Pikeville. He is a McCoy relation. And since he's been gone, he's accomplished so much. He started Mm. several businesses, served on the Kentucky State Legislature. He was a deputy sheriff for a time, and now he is an attorney. Klein had become a powerful member of the political boys club. He was what historian Patrick Hutton called the middleman. He knew the area and who to talk to and some idea of what was to come. Okay. Okay. So just imagine him, the the rat bastard middle guy between the corporations and the locals. Okay. Okay. All right. So we're not we're not in love with Perry Klein at the moment. No. And he is uh in between the locals and the businesses, maybe doing good, maybe doing evil, we have not discovered yet. Right, and he's a McCoy. Klein believed that the railroad would run its line right by the tug fork in West Virginia, right by the land that was once his. The land that Hatfield had snatched. Which means Hatfield would get a lot of money if he sold it? Absolutely. Hmm, okay. And that's not the only reason that Klein hated Hatfield. His sister was the wife of Randolph McCoy's Union soldier brother, (gasps) Asa, the very one that Hatfield's Confederate militia was said to have slaughtered. Oh, okay. We're seeing connections left and right. We're on that whiteboard. We've got the strings attached. Oh, red strings are tied, man. So Perry Klein and Randall McCoy grew closer and closer over the years. Maybe because they genuinely liked each other. I like to imagine that it was like mustache-twisting hatred. Very much that both had good mustaches. With his political interest... (laughs) That was funny. (laughs) With his political influence... Klein was the one who was going to get Devil Lance. There were four years of calm until November 1886 when 22-year-old Cap Hatfield, one of Anderson's sons, decided to be a problem. Okay. All right. Good job, Cap. A reporter wrote of him, Cap is simply a bad young man. That's so mean. I mean, even if it's true, that's just mean. Even members of the Hatfield family knew he was a troublemaker, and the standards there are pretty high. That's true. That's true. There was a violent altercation. You're not surprised, I know. No, no. Cap allegedly shot and killed Randolph McCoy's nephew as the younger McCoy was swimming across the Tug Fork trying to escape Cap and make it to Kentucky. So Randall went to Perry Klein. And Klein already wanted revenge. Mm-hmm. Perry Klein had a clever plan. Rather than seek justice for this most recent killing of the nephew, he went for the case of the Hatfields killing the three McCoy brothers on election day. That was the election day where Ellison died. Not so that the was one the where one the in 1882, two... which was four years prior to this. Yes. And this is the one where Ellison got killed, not the one where the two lovers boned. The case was called the Commonwealth of Kentucky versus Anderson Hatfield Brothers' Willful Murder. Okay. Catchy. 
I mean, the English is a little interesting, but that's what it was called. To get justice from across state lines was not easy at the time. And Klein had to call in the big guns. Enter Kentucky's new governor, Simon Bolivar Buckner. Ooh, that's a good name. It's a good name, but I don't know much about him outside of this story, but it doesn't sound like you can be a good guy named Simon Bolivar Buckner. <laughs> or the best boy. You could be the best boy. You're but not just a good best guy. Boy. <laughs> <laughs> you're either the best boy, you're not a good guy, or you're a slimy villain. So he's going to play the part of our personally motivated politician. Okay. That's the fourth option I didn't list. <laughs> this is not to say that the feuding families are victims. Because, as we've already established, aside from Sally and Rosanna, who got shafted... Really did. There really aren't any good guys. Um, oh, except for Asa, Union Shoulder. We love someone who is brave enough to fight for what is right, even when that means you have to live in a cave surrounded by people who are actively planning your death. So, Asa was the best boy. Asa was the best boy, and he has a good name. Asa McCoy. To understand our new political friend, Governor Buckner, we need to go back to the Industrial Revolution element of this story. A massive amount of coal was only just discovered on the eastern mountain region of Kentucky, and it was previously ignored by politicians, so Buckner had the opportunity to capitalize on it. He went along with the narrative from the papers at the time. Eastern Kentucky was filled with uneducated, uncivilized folk who would be improved by the capitalist industrial society of coal and steam coming to their doors. He's talking about his own state, mind you. Yeah, okay. So he's a dick. Move on. All right. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Klein, we're going to call him our lobbyist for the fall of the Hatfields met with the governor mere days after his election. He wanted the governor to join him in pursuing the case and increase the reward for each Hatfield charged to $500 a head, and that's about $2,782.79 today. Per Hatfield? Per Hatfield. In an area where $2,782 today would still get you... So much. Oh, my God. That's so much Wait, money. You oh could buy God. 500 acres of land with $500 a head if everything's about a dollar an acre. Oh, my God. You're right. <gasps> I'm sure the price had risen by then, but still. It's, an, it's a good metric. Mm -hmm. Perry Klein was savvy enough to know that the Hatfields could become the face of the governor cleaning up crime. And this also kept the governor from looking bad to his own constituents because the Hatfields were living in West Virginia. Buckner was only defending the good of the honorable citizens of his state, after all, and the capitalists didn't care if the Hatfields lived on the West Virginia side or the Kentucky side, as long as they could see crime being cleaned up and they could mm. buy more things. Mm -hmm. So four days later, Buckner sent an extradition request to the governor of West Virginia. He wanted them to hand over the Hatfield posse to face Kentucky justice. And there were weeks of deliberation before the West Virginia governor said, hell no. <laughs> direct quote? Oh, yeah, that's 100% a direct <laughs> quote. I don't know if that was uh, politically motivated or just, like, loyalty motivated. Mm, but I'm, I'm going to go with both. 
Yeah, I mean, the Hatfields make up a large number of the wealthy constituents in that area. Mm-hmm. Klein, however, would not be deterred from his revenge mission. He sent a social deputy to the state to capture the Hatfields. Enter Frank Phillips! <laughs> hey, welcome, Frank. He had no legal authority, but he was known as Bad Frank because he was ruthless and aggressive and he would get the job done. All right, as far as nickname, nicknames go, Devil Ants is so much better than Bad Frank. <laughs> Honestly, Devil Ants is one of the best nicknames I've ever heard. It's so good. Although I would, if I if I knew Bad Frank, I would I would just continue to say Bad Mad Lad Frank. <laughs> bad Sad Mad Lad. Baddy Mad Lad Frank. <laughs> bad Maddy Lad Frank. <laughs> okay, okay, continue, continue. Philip set up raids across the West Virginia side of the tug. He arrested two Hatfield associates and brought them across the river to the faithful Pikesville jail. And the message from Klein was, I don't care about the law because the governor didn't do what I wanted. I'm going to get you, my pretty, and your little dog, too. But to Devil Ants, this action looked like it was sanctioned by the state of Kentucky. Which is actually terrifying for that family if you think about it. Especially with the river so close to their home and the bounty on their heads so high. Mm-hmm. Okay. So so devil ants is getting a little bit of fear of God put into him now. I truly don't know if that man would fear God. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if he's afraid or if he's just practical, but it's not a good day for him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair. Now I'm going to tell you the story of the height of the conflict on the very first night of the year 1888. This is, as I'm sure you can imagine, an escalation in this mounting tragedy. It is a violent but not gory tale that involves members of all ages of both families. If you've ever seen a posse roundup, you know what kind of time it is. I wanted to go. I was too young. I really wanted to go. I couldn't shoot reliably. Well, who's keeping watch then? I finally asked. My Uncle Cap looked down at me, stopping his rushing around, looking real close. And that's how I ended up hanging back among the trees while my family took care of those McCoys. The moon was full. Good for seeing, but for being seen too. The ground was covered in snow, and it was cold as hell, me crouching there, watching the men. I don't think they minded making their presence known to who was in the cabin so much, but still, I was to whistle a real sharp call if I heard anything coming up from behind. The posse was made up of all the men of the family I'd most fear to be on the bad side of. It was called together by Jim Vance. We all called him Crazy Jim because he was so violent. You gotta be one scary motherfucker for Cap to call you crazy, and that's what Jim Vance was. Cap was there. He also thought he was the leader of the gang, but... On account of the whole thing being a murder, I don't think two crazies up front was a bad idea. Johns was there, my favorite uncle. Granddad Devil's brother Valentine Hatfield came along with his brother-in-law's Doc and Pliant Mahon. Valentine went by the nickname Wall, which I hope to ask him about tomorrow over breakfast if I got the nerve. And I know Doc weren't no doctor, so I figured I should ask him about that too. Also, Ellison Mounts was there. He was named for his daddy, Ellison, died by Dan McCoy. We called young Ellison Cotton Top. 
kid was an albino, so what? He was a sheet. And he was older than me, but his logic was out to lunch like a cotton bloom, so I was paying extra attention to him. If things went bad, I figured I ought to make sure he got home all right. I must have been lost in my thoughts, because I about jumped ten feet in the air when Cap called out, McCoy, give yourself up. Cotton Top and Jones were round back with me, which I liked, and the others were round about the cabin, and there was a long silence, and I hated to think what any of the women in the dark home might be up to. No time to be sorry about that. All McCoy is every last one of them. A voice I knew. It was Calvin McCoy's, from seeing him last election day. He called back, He's not home, Vance! That mistaken names would be sticking in Cap's craw. So, another one of our posse called out, We'll set this whole place on fire if you don't send the old man out. I don't know who fired the first shot. I couldn't see it from where I sat in the snow, but in no time flat, the whole house was set ablaze. Not getting any good timber, that family, so the whole thing was dry old wood. A smallish figure ran out the back, towards the well, Alifair. I knew her right away, because she had a limp, Daddy said came from years with polio. I had half a mind to run out and help her, but before I could move, she was face down in the snow. Just a dark splash in the moonlight. Cotton Top was reloading his rifle. He always was a good shot. I could hear more shooting from the front, and I wondered if Calvin had anyone with him. Old Lady Sally answered my question by running right out the door, screaming like a banshee in the night, and it seemed like... Well, like a photograph I once saw, with the moon and the snow pulling out all the colors. Crazy Jim came rushing down that hill, and she went rushing up, and he hit her so hard over the head with the butt of his gun, I bit my own cheek to keep from making a sound. I never heard that kind of noise before or since. I couldn't see Uncle Valentine, but I heard his brother shouting over the other side, and close to me, Jones was hollering and, and running off after a man in the dark. Oh, I knew his figure without hardly seeing him. Randall McCoy. He did not look scary as I seen him in election. Usually kind of imposing with the whole Kentucky gang always gathered round him. He was close enough to night that I could see him carrying a big bundle, and he ran like I'd never seen a man run. I think only Sally McCoy, now lying in the snow, was the only person who could match it. I couldn't see any more among the trees, but I heard the pitiful mew of a baby coming from the dark, and I figured out what that old man was carrying. I do not know what posses were supposed to do with babies. In truth, I didn't even know much of what mothers did with them, though there always seemed to be a new one popping up around the big house. I watched Randall McCoy for a long time, jaunts and cotton top chasing after him like a bat out of hell, and I weren't sure how to feel. That's why I think I was taken by surprise when Adelaide and Fanny McCoy came upon me. They were as surprised to see me as I was to see them, and I could tell from their wild eyes. They each had about six or seven years on me and a few inches. I had the thought real fast. You could win if they jump on you. You got a good right hook and a hard head. These were just girls, after all. But we just looked at each other, and it was quiet in our part of the woods, even though there was shouting around the rest. I heard my own heartbeat, and I heard Fanny make kind of a chirp in her throat but we were all frozen like deer. Coming to, I looked around fast as I could, then jerked my head real hard in which direction they should run. 
I didn't want Cottontop to put them down in the snow like poor Limp and Alifair. They ran where I sent them. And I ran the other way towards the boys in the cabin, trying to make noise as best I could so no one would hear them. When I found Captain Crazy Jim, the fight was over, and Calvin lay down in the snow, and Valentine held his gun. No one spoke. Not for the whole cold walk back. Until someone said, We have made a bad job of it. There will be trouble over this. I didn't know. I didn't really know much of anything all of a sudden. I just kept thinking of Alifair, bleeding out instead of being able to put out a fire in her own home. Sally, who'd run real brave, rotten to a man I was too scared to look at long. Something about the McCoys looked pretty the same as everyone else to me. I hated them, but I still hoped Fanny and Adelaide were safe. I decided I would not ask to join the next posse. Better to be a bad shot, I think. Okay, so I need to know how much of that is based on as much as as we can possibly know of historical truth, because if even half of that is true, that is brutal. Yeah, it's it's all a bummer. <laughs> In my story, every element is accurate to the versions I read and listened to, including the lines that the characters spoke, except for the addition of my narrator. In real life, absolutely no young boys kept watch during the attack for the Hatfields. Oh my god. One report I read said Cap was the leader, and the other said it was Crazy Jim. So I tried to include a little bit of that. Uh, mm -hmm. There are a few versions of what happened to Sally, though she always ended up concussed in the snow. And some stories say Randall ran out with an infant grandchild and others don't. Okay. I imagine that this story was greatly embellished over the years for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. By both sides, I would imagine. Oh, of course. On the McCoy side, Sally felt the effects of that attack for the rest of her life. That injury affected her forever, and Randall McCoy came back to find his house burned to the ground and his children dead in the snow. Oh my god. This is the marker of the feud reaching new heights. This officially condemned the Hatfields as quote-unquote savages, and they were losing the support of the locals if it wasn't already gone. Yeah, yeah, I bet. And I think an element of that was um, killing the women. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, they're, they, yeah, the, innocent, the women and the children were completely innocent in this, e even by the standards of, I guess, the time. I mean, especially by the standards of the time, it would be especially brutal. And I do want to uh, specify, because I know that it's kind of hard to keep track of these generations, but Randall McCoy's children who were there mm -hmm. were adult children. Right. So okay. Alifair, who had the um, disability because of her time with polio, mm -hmm. she, I believe, was 29 about, and she was okay. considered a spinster and lived with her family because she was unwed. Right. Um, Fanny and Adelaide were teenagers, um, but they were on the downside of them having children because, right, you, right, right, you right, know, right. they have 13 children, so... Mm -hmm. 
I, I guess I wanted to specify that because when we think about like Johns Hatfield being a proper adult in this, right. it kind of gives a little bit more of an idea of who we're dealing with mm-hmm. because we have entire generations within one generation of a family. I mean, meaning like you could have a millennial and a Gen Z in the same generation of a family. <laughs> yes. There are two versions of the planning behind that night. One in which Devil Ants set it all up, not knowing that Randall McCoy no longer had any influence over the scores of bounty hunters who flooded the area to collect on the Hatfields. The other version is that the whole murderous night was arranged and executed by the younger, hot-headed members of the family without Devil's knowledge. We do not know. This is just my guess, based Mm -hmm. on only my opinion, truly. Okay, okay. I guess that the younger members planned it without Anderson Hatfield because he was a smart man. He was. He kept that family going for a long time and that was the wrong move and it was so obviously the wrong move yes i think that's where i'm in agreement too it's definitely it it smacks of hot-headed men like young hot-headed men as opposed to the patriarch who's had this going for a long time and kind of can see and plan a few more steps ahead the idea behind it was to remove the patriarch of the McCoy family to end the whole thing. But I think believing that the Kentucky government was now involved, Devil Ants would be smart enough to know that killing Randall McCoy isn't going to fix it. No, it's not going to do anything. So Frank Phillips, bad Frank, who was hired by Perry Klein to conduct raids on the Hatfields, continued to conduct those raids in West Virginia Mm -hmm. over the following weeks. He killed Jim Vance when the man resisted arrest and then captured six more wanted Hatfields. Arguing about due process, the governors of each state considered and threatened to send their respective militias into each other's states. Wow. All right. So it's getting heated. The New York Times published an article that read in big, bold letters, Bloody war in Pike County. The McCoys and Hatfields doing their utmost to exterminate each other. The governor Mm. to be asked to send troops to the mountain wilds to force a truce. (laughs) Okay. Litigation was sent to the Supreme Court. But bad Frank Phillips was a man on a mission and wanted results immediately. On January 19th, he took his forces across Grapevine Creek only to find another Hatfield posse in West Virginia. They were on the exact land Hatfield took from Klein so many years before, as story goes. (laughs) Wow. Of course. This was the only organized battle of the entire war between the Hatfields and the McCoys. Phillips killed two of Hatfield's men and, quote, executed a West Virginia deputy who had surrendered. Devil Ants and most of the family retreated, but not before Frank arrested eight Hatfields. According to the History Channel, quote, in 1888, several Hatfields were arrested and stood trial for the murder of two of Randall McCoy's children. West Virginia sued for the men's release, 
arguing that they had been illegally extradited across state lines. The Supreme Court eventually became involved in the case, known as Mahon v. Justice. In its 7-2 decision, the court ruled in favor of Kentucky, allowing for the trials and subsequent convictions of all the Hatfield men. Seven of them received life sentences, and one, Ellison Cottontop Mounts, was executed for his crimes. End quote. At his trial, Cottontop's mental disability meant he struggled to repeat the confession that the prosecuting attorney, none other than Perry Klein, had taught him. Mm. Jane Ann Phillips described the result of the New Year's attack. Quote, Stories circulated that Johns Hatfield had actually shot Alifair. Other stories held that Johns, still heartsick over Rosanna, had aimed into the air and refused to shoot any of the McCoys. By the time Nancy McCoy had divorced him and married bad Frank Phillips, whom mm-hmm. she may have assisted by spying on the Hatfields. Rosanna, wow. quote, had died of a broken heart, a euphemism for death by suicide. Cottontop was hanged in Pikeville before an audience of thousands, and the press duly recorded his last words, The Hatfields made me do it. Wow. All right, so we've officially gotten into very dark territory. It's dark. It's sad. Very dark and and needless. Yeah. Yeah, I'm... And it's so dramatized Mm -hmm. in the newspaper. It's so funny to me. You know, I hear about all the shooting. I'm like, yep, a bunch of men shot each other. And then when I hear about John shooting into the air because he was still a heart sick over Rosanna, I'm like, nope, no. No, that's not true. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no, don't try to paint roses on this picture at this point. And Nancy, Nancy is just doing everyone dirty. Yeah, Nancy's not looking great, babe. Not doing, not doing yourself proud. I mean, I know she was a McCoy, so her marrying bad Frank Phillips, you know, it made sense. But still, mm-hmm. I have titled this next section, lovingly, I'm too old for this shit. Oh, good. Let's hear it. During all this bloodshed, Devil Ants was fighting to keep his business alive. He owed hundreds of dollars on all the debt cases that were rushed to trial by the local merchants. Four weeks after the New Year's Day raid, Hatfield sold his land by the Tug River to a coal agent who agreed to pay off the debts. Even in a few years, this land would become incredibly valuable when the railroad came through. This was the hope of Klein, and he won that battle. Mm. Exit Perry Klein. All right, see you later, babe. Or not, I guess. I don't like him. I know it, like... I know that he's not going around shooting anybody. I know. I get it. He just used politics. Something about him. I can't like him. I don't like anyone in this story except for the women. And Asa. Asa was the best boy. Asa was the best boy. (laughs) Hatfield retreated higher into the mountains, 20 miles from the Kentucky border in Logan County. He built a windowless fort by his cabin, and posted armed men at each corner of the property. Which I would say was a bit extreme, but this whole thing is a bit extreme, so... Yeah. Right, 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 right. It's on track, yeah. Enter journalist T.C. Crawford of New York World. Mm. In my head, he's got like a His Girl Friday vibe, but it's only 1888, so he definitely does not. 
He can have a proto his girl Friday vibe as a as a little treat. <laughs> <laughs> he came to Appalachia with the goal of getting his first major scoop, entering the fort of Devil Ants Hatfield and speaking to the armed Appalachian gang. They right, were the so top balls. He does have balls. And I imagine him compared to Devil Ants, who I don't know was a big guy, but I imagine this reporter just being a squiggly little mite of a man and mm-hmm. Devil Ants just seeing through his whole soul. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With those eyes, he certainly does. <laughs> they were the talk and terror of the country, says historian Robert Hutton. He was practically the first Northeastern reporter to get firsthand knowledge of what's going on in the Tug River Valley. I love this part. You know I love newspapers from the time. Mm-hmm. Sunday, October 7th, 1888, the first of his three articles wrote. Should I do the voice? Yeah, of course. Okay. An American vendetta. Mountaineers who have been killing each other over for 25 years. Their murderous feud waged by the Hatfields and McCoys. A story of wholesale slaughter unparalleled in our history. I have been away in Murderland for nearly 10 days. No one would believe that there is in this country such a barbarous, uncivilized, and wholly savage region. Murderland? Yeah, like Disneyland, but Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone's favorite vacation spot. (laughs) Hundreds and thousands of readers devoured these tales over three weeks of the Sunday publication, and then the Cincinnati Inquirer picked up the story and it became a national headline. This paper wrote, Devil Ants, the outlaw king of Kentucky, visited in his fortified lair by a newspaper man. Description of the stronghold of the Hatfields, what the notorious men look like at home, constantly armed and never without sentinels on guard. Yeah, 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 yeah. That voice works for this. He lived in West Virginia. Okay. Um, Are you ready for this? Yes. The story got equal billing in papers at the time with Jack the Ripper. (gasps) Yeah. I love it. Oh, my God. So it was just as big. Yeah. There are pictures in the paper of on the same page, like Jack the Ripper article, Hatfields and the McCoys article. Wow. Wow. That is wild. Crawford published a book, An American Vendetta, a story of barbarism in the United States, and it was the first of many eventual books exploring this legendary feud. None of this publicity was good for the people that lived in the area because the Mm. story was not contextualized. Oh, yeah. Oh. There were characters drawn of figures like, quote, Mountain Girl. She had a rumpled dress, she was smoking, she had a crazy hat, she was scowling. This is kind of the beginning of, like, the hick idea. Okay. Um, Mm -hmm. And papers liken them to backward savages who were not able to progress into this new, modern, magical, industrialized age. Hmm. All this media came out before the phrase yellow journalism was actually born, but this was a time before TV, so the news wasn't really about facts. It was about entertainment, and I say that as if the news isn't like that today. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So T.C. Crawford wasn't a bad journalist for blending fact and fiction. He just was a journalist in 1888. Okay, okay. So he's not the villain. We're okay with T.C. Crawford. And I would like to emphasize that this is not a conspiracy between the newspapers 
and the railroads and the coal companies to steal land from Appalachian families, they just all profit from the same narrative. Oh, okay. Yeah, they do. It makes sense. And when one succeeds, they all kind of succeed because there's something mm -hmm. to write about. And if they're writing about it, then they get to move forward. I mean, press and big business have always been that way. What? Tied together? Profiting from each other? I can't imagine it. Big business? Me in this economy? T.C. <laughs> <laughs> Crawford wrote, quote, the country is wonderfully rich and needs only a railroad to come up through it to drive out this outlaw class. Woof. By 1890, Norfolk and Western were laying track to the Ohio River. As promised, it ran through Tug Fork in West Virginia, right through the land Hatfield was forced to sell. I want to feel bad for him, but I don't. I'm going to withhold my comment okay. for now okay because um, i have so many feelings um <laughs> massive timbering operations were able to flourish because of the railroad and this turned the once dense forest into vast swaths of nothing mm. company-owned coal camps sprung up Massive businesses that took up the space that was once used for farming. And there were notices in papers telling people not to trespass on recently purchased lands. Because people were not accustomed to being told they couldn't go on certain right. properties. Right. And these notices included 1,300 acres along the Tug River that once belonged to Anderson Hatfield. Wow. That's a huge amount of land. That's a lot of land. And people in this area either adapted or left. Uh, this led them to city factory jobs or traveling out west. Randolph McCoy finished his life in Pikeville, where he operated a ferry. Apparently, he would tell his story at every opportunity to anyone who he could convince to lend an ear. He died at 88 in 1914 from injuries he received after falling into a cooking fire. Whoa. It seems to me that in his older age, the trauma he suffered at his hands and the hands of others, combined with the poverty and the destruction of his home, really took its toll. I, I cannot imagine it didn't. Physically and mentally, it had to wear him down. And, and I'm shocked he made it to 88. That's a good old age for our time, and I would have to imagine the physical and emotional toll of everything that happened to him and his children and his wife. Like, you, that guy was tough if he lived that long. And, you know, devil ants actually ended up outliving him. <laughs> of course uh, he did. Course he was he younger, did. but still. Uh, mm -hmm. Seven years later, devil ants passed away, and unlike Randall McCoy, thousands of people attended his funeral. Hatfields, who were now middle-class employees of coal mines, who were lawyers and politicians, all the jobs that flourished in the area that he and later corporations deforested. Later, a life-sized marble statue of the devil himself was put up over his grave. I think it's partly the contrarian in me, but it makes me angry that at pretty much every turn... Devil Ants Hatfield succeeded in this story, so that alone 
<clears throat> not that I'm rooting for Randall McCoy, but makes me root for Randall McCoy. Okay. I can understand that. Yeah. I, I hear ya. I'm just in it for the underdog. Not that I'm actually rooting for McCoy. They both suck, but right, no, really, but- McCoy never won. Like, McCoy pretty much always came out behind ants. And I can't stop thinking about the fact that these wars really resemble, like, the New York Mafia. The way that they operate, mm-hmm. the way that they created their quote-unquote families. It's, mm-hmm. it's all versions of clan warfare. And the fact that people constantly associated them with backward inbred culture, with mountain savages who need to be taught what they want and how not to be violent, really affects the way we look at it. And like the podcast stuff you should know that I listen to for this, definitely give them a listen. They have an episode on the Hatfields and the McCoys. They called this mountain folk versus mountain folk. Mm Mm-hmm. And that carries a very specific connotation to us now because of media. Yes. And, you know, there's the problem that when people say inbred culture, McCoy did marry his first cousin. That exists. Right. And at the same time, these two families are not the whole swath of Appalachia. (laughs) No, no, not by any stretch of the imagination. And yet, they did come from Appalachia. It's it's this weird, like, you can't speak for all of us, and at the same time, your existence does speak for all of us. Yeah, it's the, it's the half-truths of it representing it, – it's something that I've, I've talked about just as a woman in computer science, and I've talked to people who are minorities in computer science, where everything you do feels like it echoes way further because suddenly you're representing – an entire group of people just by virtue of existing. And that's kind of what they did. They represented all of Appalachia, whether they meant to or not, whether they wanted to or not, by virtue of existing, they did. I have a very vivid memory of the year when we learned about the Hatfields and the McCoys mm-hmm. in school. I don't know why, like, teenagers and young people, and I guess adult people do this, but, you know, you're like, I would have been a Hatfield. Like, you just pick yes. a person to be. Yeah. And, like, looking back on that, I'm like, Okay, first of all, no one should be picked. But also, right. I remember being like, I would have picked a Hatfield because the nicknames are cooler and the guns are gunnier. Like, it just <laughs> <laughs> becomes this larger-than-life story that you oh, can be 100%. removed from. And mm-hmm. I I wanted to cover this on this podcast because I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to cover the American Appalachian Romeo and Juliet and that is not what this is. No. And no. I have a lot of feelings that I've been politely containing and now we're going to talk about it. So Go for it. I'm ready. I no one won this feud. No one won this feud, but you know who super lost this feud? The people of Appalachia. Mm. And they live with this idea that was created, this idea of unredeemability. And the news took, spent so much effort to throw the poverty of the people of Tug Fork back in their face. And there was this quote from that PBS documentary that I'm infatuated with. That, And they talked about this at length. And it says, 
We need to understand that sometimes the people telling the story about violence have as much of an agenda as the people who are acting out the violence in the first place. And when I look back on how we studied this in school, we didn't look at newspaper reports. We didn't contextualize it. We were just like, oh, yes, in the woods, these families were killing each other. Weird. And we just moved on. No, we covered it in the same section that we covered Romeo and Juliet. It was like three different Romeo and Juliet style stories. We read a fictionalized version of this story. It was a fictionalized version of the Johnson Rosanna Mm -hmm. story, I believe. Uh, Talked a little bit about history and then moved on a week later. I went at such great length to talk about the socioeconomic reality in Appalachia around these families because I think it's vital to understanding the story. The story about the hog and about the election days and the romance and the trials don't exist in a vacuum. And if you Mm -hmm. don't understand what Hatfield's business looked like and McCoy's life and how it affected the people around them, it doesn't really mean anything. Um, So historian Stephen Stoll said of the effect of industry on Appalachia, quote, Economic growth is not something that serves the needs or the interests of everybody, but it's presented to us in a universal way. It's about greater consumption. It's about turning nature into wealth. It's about a notion of progress that comes from the spread of capitalism. Mm. In Devil Ants' own lifetime, trees in the forest were huge. So big that when I saw pictures of these men in the Tug Valley cutting them down, that at first I thought I had found the wrong pictures because it looked like they were in the Redwoods. Wow. And it was land that, you know, the trees and the plants were relied on by the animals and the animals were relied on by the people and they survived Because the wealth was the land that they lived on and what it provided for them. And the Hatfields and all the people who began logging and participating in this industrialization that was moving towards them were literally destroying their own way of life. They traded the ability to live in that way for sending logs down the river, for the promise of economic gain that looked very different than what they had ever thought of as success before. And when I was researching this, a friend told me a story that I never really thought of before. And it was that at the time, logging operations were floating entire tree trunks down the river, the Mississippi River, for production. And parts of the Mississippi were so full of logs that someone could just walk across it. What? And the problem with this is that when workers would go to break up log jams, if a tree rolled, they died. There was absolutely no way to push up against a tree that weighed over 100 pounds, and the river was too full of logs to swim anywhere else to the surface. So often... When they were taking trees out of the river downstream, there were just bodies that had floated down with them. Oh, my God. That is horrible and morbid. And that idea that 
the very industry you've tapped into from your land that you're destroying causing like death in that very clear way like Mm -hmm. you cut down a tree and now the cut down tree is your downfall it feels like such a poetic image for what was happening in the region at the time you know the coal mining in that mineral rich soil killed workers in other ways in mining accidents or giving them black lung and over the course of one generation as the feud on pbs pointed out families went from owning their own home their own business being able to travel wherever they wanted to living on someone else's land in a coal company house with no ability to travel through the countryside that through logging and mining and railways was becoming increasingly unfamiliar. And it stripped people of their identity and their way of life and their control and their hope in industrialism. And that generation would grow up to be worse off than their parents. And living off the land evolved from hunting your food and growing your crops to selling your property and renting it back. Oh, oh, that's horrible to think of. And I will only touch on this briefly, but it has to be said. Just like white colonizers took the land away from the Cherokee and the Shawnee and the other native nations that cared for this land... And those massive, beautiful trees before any British Heathfield or Scottish McCoy ever even heard of America. Just, there's another, like, it's it's this other, like, horrible circular poetry right. of watching what these people built. And I, when I think about the Hatfields and the McCoys now, after researching this, Mm-hmm. Like, I don't – the Romeo and Juliet story is a blip. It's – yeah, it is It is a blip, and it's so clearly the only part people want to take out of it. And even then, the reality of it is not cute or charming. That mm, – it's such, it's such a 2020 person thing of me to look back and say, you know, like, do you understand what this means? Like logging your land in this way, do you do you know what's going to? Do you have the forethought to say, right. "I cut down this tree, and this tree never comes back, not in my lifetime, not in my grandchildren's lifetime." There's there's no way. Or is it just this hope that you will make enough money before it's all gone? Oh, it's definitely that. It's 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 thinking about surviving. It's just surviving. In whatever means you can. You don't have the luxury of thinking about your grandchildren and your grandchildren's grandchildren. Yeah, I really want to sit here and say, like, mm, you got your comeuppance. You white colonizers took this land and then you destroyed it and then you were worse off for it. But I look at the people, the everyday people that John Mayo basically stole land from as well you know they thought they lived there they thought it was their land they were very poor they were surviving from one day to the next they didn't have any context for their own lives they didn't Mm -hmm. think about the reality of the land that they were now living on 
and whose it was before. They didn't think about what industrialization meant in the long run. They needed money and they needed food. Exactly. And that is the socioeconomic situation that allows things like this to happen and continue to happen. Mm-hmm. You still see it today in different forms, but it still exists today. It reminds me very much of like Madagascar, what goes on in the forest land there and, you know, getting mm-hmm. palm oil. It's just there's no ability to address the larger picture because survival mm-hmm. is that difficult. Um, Tracy, I promised mm-hmm. you a science fact. Okay. Let's hear it. Because I can't end on that. Okay. From the History Channel, quote, In a 2007 study, a team of doctors and geneticists who had studied dozens of McCoy descendants noted an unusually high rate of von Hippel-Lindau disease, a rare inherited condition that produces tumors of the eyes, ears, pancreas, and adrenal glands, as well as high blood pressure, a racing heartbeat, and increased fight-or-flight stress hormones. The researchers also collected numerous oral histories from family members detailing the combative and often violent nature of the McCoy family dating back to the feud's roots. One, I love a biology fact that is so interesting that they were potentially more genetically predisposed to violence. Two, another example of the McCoys losing out. I know. Just gotta say. And I don't want to put this in the context of like, this was all happening because these people had this gene. It's just another tiny piece of this puzzle Mm -hmm. that, you know, the larger picture Mm -hmm. that we only have the luxury of looking at now. There was no freaking healthcare. There was no healthcare. No, No, healthcare was the herbs you grew in your backyard. That was healthcare. I think healthcare for the Hatfields and the McCoys was dying before you needed healthcare. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Uh, One more science nerd fact to make everyone happy. Um, Leonard Bones McCoy of Star Trek fame was supposedly a McCoy descendant. (laughs) (laughs) And if anyone wants some cheering up, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of descendants of Hatfields and McCoys still living in the area today. There are numerous modern stories about Hatfields and McCoys marrying. Uh... It's lovely. They were on Family Feud in 1979. (laughs) And that's a really funny episode uh, that's, you know, based on the cinematic universe. Our friend Kurt Anderson from the 1981 Time article said, quote, Two years ago, in a brainstorm of California kind, the producers brought Hatfields and McCoys, ten of each, out to Hollywood. The contestants were dressed in period costumes, and a rented scrub hog was led into the studio so the quasi-historical argument could be staged. That is on YouTube. (laughs) Do I want to watch that? I mean, it's like a 1979 episode of Family Feud, so it's, like, very staged. I hope those people made money off of it. I don't know. I just... I want to go out and spend some time with trees, honestly, after this story. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. All right. that That's it. That's the whole you did damn that. thing. <laughs> you – I am so impressed. You did so much research and – I'm sorry. I got so into this story. Never, never apologize for getting excited about learning things. Are you kidding? I loved it. Yeah. 
I, uh, I How also, are you feeling? I don't know. You know, thinking about like, okay, just looking back at the specifically the Hatfields and the McCoys. Again, rat bastards, every last one of them. McCoy mm-hmm. got the short end of the stick every time. But I do look at Devil Ants and I'm like, you were a clever son of a gun. You were a capable son of a gun. Like, he really did that. Mm-hmm. For better or worse, I mean worse, he really yeah. did that. He really did. You did such a good job with this episode. I'm always blown away at your ability to get so <laughs> many details into, like, one section. <laughs> I, okay, I wrote this whole thing. And then I sat there and I was like, well, Rowan, you got to take something out. And I couldn't. I couldn't. <laughs> I could not. And because because truly John Mayo would be the first to go. And I hate that man. <laughs> it is funny of all the people who do terrible things in this story. It's John Mayo who you, you know really why? latched on to. You know why? It's because, okay. The Hatfields and the McCoys were raised into it. And that's not fair. Teaching children to hate other people is really a terrible thing to do and what the heck are they supposed to do in that situation but you know but for the most part i look at these adult men and i'm like y'all signed up to shoot each other you were being shitty you knew it you did it and i look at the women and i go wow that is awful for you and i can't dig too much into that because i too am a woman so it takes me to john mayo who came along and on purpose destroyed the lives of the people he grew up with, and none of those people signed up for that. And I think, I do fundamentally think there's a difference between shooting the guy who's also like, I'm going to shoot you, right, and stealing the homes from people under the assumption that they will be able to provide safe, happy lives for their children. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm not arguing you on this case at all. I'm with I know, you. I just, oh. in conclusion... Who was the asshole in the Hatfields and the McCoys? John Mayo. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I think we need some some good in our lives. Yes. Tracy, tell me something good. (laughs) Modern, please. Yes. So this past weekend, I rearranged, I cleaned and rearranged my office slash loft. Ooh. Get that cleaning serotonin. Oh, yes. I organized. I went and bought stuff organization stuff it was very nice and then while doing it jamie helped me which was so nice of her she never really hangs out up here but still totally helped me redo it and arrange it and clean it and organize it and she showed me the musical six that i listened to and now Mm -hmm. i'm obsessed with it it is a pop rock concert style musical that is sung by the six wives of henry the eighth as if they were a girl band live for one night I really need to listen to more music from that musical because I've only heard the one the song Get Down song. Yeah. Yeah. And this is not me judging the musical. This is just me knowing my own taste. That particular song is not my taste. I find it very jarring. But I love the idea. So I need to listen to the rest of the musical. Listen to the rest of the musical, especially with the idea of it being the Spice Girls, but the wives of Henry VIII. Like, that is very the vibe oh, of it. Spice Girls is it actually is, helpful. I didn't really think about that. Oh, yeah. It's absolutely meant to be, like, weary 90s girl band <laughs> singing about being the wives of Henry VIII. It is – I really enjoy it. And it's so, it's really short. It's, like, an hour-long total, and it's so catchy. I think there's only, like, 12 songs, and they're all stuck in my head. So 
Highly recommend the musical six and also taking some time to clean and rearrange a room in your house. Speaking of musicals, can I just say something silly? Yeah. Since you did the Rasputin episode, I have been listening to the music from the Anastasia musical. <laughs> Which Rasputin is not in. I know. I don't know why I even went there, but... Because they're cowards. I don't know that it's a musical I would be super eager to see, only because I either want the history or the cartoon, and really nothing mm -hmm. in between. But I do really, in the music, I can get down with. It's, you know, it's just to me, it's a musical. Yeah, I love a good musical. So that's mine. Rowan, tell me something good. My something good this week is that Kaylee Bray, my lovely friend, who Tracy is now also friends with because... I adore her. She's wonderful. I said they had to be. You didn't... We we met for the first time and we're like, so we're just... We're just good friends? Good friends? Best friends? Okay, cool. Cool. Okay, great. Moving and on. And then I just <laughs> stepped in and I was like, you guys have to be friends. And you were like, we already did that. Shut we up. We already did that. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> so Kaylee took me to Cantrip Candles, which just opened up a location in Los Angeles. And for I'm anyone so who doesn't jealous. know, they are a small business. They're a wonderful part of the D&D community. They have these large candles that when you get to the bottom, there's a D20. And I love that. It's so fun because people love to post which number was up for them when they get to the bottom. <laughs> yeah. They, the scents they make are supposed to be for locations that would be in a campaign. So each candle has mm -hmm. a little map of what the location would be. Uh, I ended up, My favorite one that I got was, I think it's called Sweet Fig Farmhouse because I love the smell of fig. Mm -hmm. But I also have, you know, Thieves' Den, which truly smells like a den of thieves. It's awesome. I love that. I'm guessing a lot I, of leather, tobacco, smoke. Mm -hmm. It actually somehow manages to smell like a fire. You know, like a fireplace fire. Not all candles have that. Mm-hmm. And I just was so happy to go out of the house. They were so great at social distancing, but also that space is just designed to be so welcoming to D&D nerds. It's just fun I and beautiful. That. And in it, they have a window going back to the large space that where they make the candles. So you kind of get to <gasps> peek in and it's wonderful. And I... I want to steal their aesthetic, like all of their items. They, It's just so – all of it. <laughs> Amazing. So, I, I love can't that. speak highly enough of that brand. Um, <laughs> this isn't sponsored. I just really love them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and as always, with everything we recommend, you can find it on our recommendations page on our website. We recommend a ton of books, musicals, stores. No, put, put six up there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Put six up there so I can find it easily. <laughs> find it on Spotify, Rowan. You just have to use Spotify. I do. Send me a playlist. Make me a playlist. <laughs> Show me you love okay. me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, my gosh, everyone. I hope I hope you, you are not in a blood feud with a family that lives across the river from you. I hope you're as proud of Rowan as I am for all <laughs> the hard work she did on this episode. Not this next week. There's one more episode. But after that, we are taking a brief two-week hiatus because we have a lot of fun things to prep for you guys. Mm -hmm. Okay, I won't tell them. I... You should tell them. Give them a hint. Okay, one hint is that there may or may not be more uh, adventures of our wizard and our rogue friend. <laughs> <laughs> but the rest of it has to stay a secret for now. Um, so not this lovely next episode. 
But after that, we will be gone for two weeks. You may cry yourselves to sleep at your leisure. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Oh, my God. I did that. I said it. And now my heart is racing. Like, wow, that was really confident of you, Rowan. Like, bold. (laughs) Oh, I so relate to that. The amount of times I say stuff during the day and then just have the anxiety sweats for a little while afterwards. (laughs) Staggering. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, stories grow with the telling. So if you like what we do, tell a friend. Or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon, okay? Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our music was written and performed by Taylor Ash, and our logo is by Jamie Harrison. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes, or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of ancient myths, local legends, and stories with staying power.